Welcome to Purpose and Principles Podcast. I'm Max Brown, and my guest today is Tim Pearson. Tim is a CEO and president at Integris Health, but prior to that, um, 18 plus years at Intermountain Healthcare in several different administrative roles. Um, regional VP, CEO of their North Region, and the Vice President of Continuous Improvement for the region. Um, and Tim and I have gone way back, certainly when he was starting and or when he was doing all this great work at Intermountain. And we had a lot of different connections back then, talking about why continuous improvement is so important and, and how continuous improvement is critical in creating better patient care and, and getting better outcomes. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And I'm so glad that you're on this show today because I think there's a lot of people out there that are still saying, yeah, we've done that lean thing in hospitals, but what is that? It still feels like factory stuff. But Tim, you're leading an effort in really hard times like we're all experiencing and encouraging people to do great work. I'm really grateful you'd be here. Thank you. Happy to be here with you. Good to see you again. Well, it's good to see you too. And, and you you know, this has been pushed and delayed because of things that we didn't actually anticipate even, you know, 90 days ago. But right. how do you guys keep going and how does Purpose help you um, in your current work? And maybe just give me a lay of the land. What's going on for you guys right now? Yeah. So Integris Health, we're a $2 billion health system. We're the largest health system in Oklahoma. We have 19 hospital campuses, about uh, 700 employee positions, 1,400 um physicians in a clinically integrated network. And, um, you know, we are, uh, healthcare is a mission, vision-driven type of industry. Mm-hmm. And so purpose is, has never been a problem for uh, me and particularly in healthcare and inspiring other people because people are inspired. They went into healthcare to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think, I don't know that that's, different than other industries. I think it might be a little bit different. People kind of feel like they're called to this industry. And so, you know, our, I mean, our whole mission is to partner with people to live healthier lives. Mm -hmm. And that's inspiring, right? You get people who um, are needing to live more healthy lives and us doing things to help them. You have people who are in an acute situation where they need to be made healthy through the actions that we do. So that connection back to human interaction is uh, is just inspiring for all of our caregivers. It's certainly inspiring to me, and it gives me a great platform to rally the troops that we have to be better every single day because we are saving lives. We are changing lives. And um, and so I, I feel very fortunate to be in healthcare and, and chose healthcare for that very reason because of its its. A mission, vision, values, purposeful approach to life. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, you've been doing it for over two decades in in really big and important roles to influence just lots and lots of people. For me, the question becomes, you know, as I read a lot of research, and you and I've, you know, we talked about this before, but how do we help people who are purpose driven stay? stay in the game when it seems almost overwhelming at times. You know, we hear a lot of stress right now on caregivers. Some, some talk about compassion fatigue, but I think that's a little bit different, but there's a, there's a lot of pressure. And certainly right now there's a lot of pressure on caregivers. How, how do you keep people in the game, if you will, when it is so difficult? Well, so I think first as a leader, um, I, I think this can be 
any leader, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're a frontline leader or a CEO like me, um, if not me, who, mm-hmm. if not now, when, right? I mean, we have the opportunity to step up and make a difference wherever we are. And so, I mean, there's days I'm tired and frustrated and so forth. But in the end, I have the opportunity to, to really shape that uh, purposeful mission that I talked about earlier. And every single leader does. So, um, you know, lift where you stand, make a difference where you are, and uh, and it makes a big difference. I, I think in terms of inspiring others, um, I, I find that that um, doesn't matter what role you're in. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves to create. Everybody loves to solve problems. And um, and so, if if we as leaders create a platform where people feel like that they can come and be the solution to a problem, they will be the solution. Like I don't have to tell them exactly what to do. I just have to create an environment where they feel comfortable in providing their their best for the situation. And in that scenario, um, people get engaged. That's why people like it. Um, that's why they want to work where you're at because you're giving them an avenue to be able to express their best self. That could be a person doing food services. That could be a surgeon. That could be a nurse. Could be a, a leader. But uh, that's really important. And to me, uh, one of the things I've tried to create is a culture where everybody feels engaged and can actually uh, be a part of the solution. You know, I think you touched on something really critical. And while some people might think that, yeah, we're engaging our people, you know, and we kind of throw around words like that. But but you actually have done that. When I've been in your systems and walked through with with the staff and with teams and whether it, like you said, food services or whether we're down with, with folks um, in sterilization and sterilizing equipment or they're in the operating rooms or they're, you know, in the PACU units or the ED. I mean, we're just... I'm always so impressed when people feel like they're part of the solution and they're not just a tool in someone else's toolkit. And I think there is a difference. You know, there are some leaders out there who are directing and telling a lot. And I know sometimes that's a, that's appropriate, but more often than not, what you just described, I think, is really important for leaders to figure out that we need everyone to be a problem solver out there and not just the leaders. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if I could have, um, learned this earlier in my career, I would have, uh, I, I think when I, when I started my career early, you know, out of grad school, it was like, okay, I'm a smart business leader. And so I can come forward and bring good solutions. And, and what I realized is, as time drew on, a, I wasn't any good if I didn't have great people and I didn't unharnish unharnish their collective genius but b people are super smart and their minds are beautiful if you find a way to tap them they will you know tap into that creative genius that they have they will do amazing things and uh you know it took a little bit of time for me to understand that i think i always felt like i wanted to give people um a lot of rope to do what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. But um, what I learned is that as a leader, I have to be very purposeful in creating an environment that creates that. Because if I don't, it won't happen. Mm. It's not an accidental thing. And, uh, you know, 
I mean, I, I found this just through trial and error, really. I, I found it by visiting initially oddly, but then I went and visited lots of places, healthcare systems, non-healthcare systems, you know, uh, a company that makes diamond drill bits for oil manufacturers to, um, you know, uh, large health systems. And yeah. what I learned is that there, that if you want that kind of engagement and involvement in problem solving, broad scale problem solving, it's not accidental. It's a culture that has to be built through a management system, an, an operating system, an operating model. I call it at Integris the inter, uh, the Integris leadership operating system. And when I was at Intermountain, we called it the Intermountain operating model. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it is just a, a thing that helps leaders think about. It's a framework of how we want leaders to um, work and do certain things so that it then creates the environment and culture that you want in in your organization and it works i mean it works in spades every every place that i've seen it work that's uh, deployed something like that and every place that i've deployed it it's you know seen really strong results I, I agree with you. And the operating model you're describing, it, it, it does start with leaders, as you mentioned, right? That leaders have to set the stage and we set the climate. And that really cascades into all the policies, the systems, the processes that people follow on a day-to-day basis. But we set that climate. And when we model the way, it's more, it's more likely to be adopted and accepted as people move into, hey, if the leaders are doing it, we certainly can do this as well. But you and I have both seen this before. Um, companies or organizations who have tried to develop or deploy a model, but it just it fell short. It just never got any traction. Or they've been struggling with this for years, and they just always seem to be rebranding it over and over again. So how do you describe the difference? Because you've had tremendous success, and, and it's, it's, it really does speak to you guys are doing it differently than a lot of others. Yeah, I think... Um I think maybe the key is a lot of times when people say they want to do continuous improvement or they want to do lean, whatever they call it, uh, Six Sigma, it really becomes very focused. Um, when I was starting to look at this, uh, particularly in healthcare, there was a sense that you do it, um, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so take a, um, a single area and just really learn everything you need to know about that and make it deep. And then you can spread it over the organization. Well, I mean, the reality is, is I mean, that would take you a hundred years to spread if you did it that way. Mm-hmm. And I found that, that if you deploy an operating model, you do it quickly, mm-hmm. you do it rapidly, you do it thoughtfully and you make it, as sort of a shock to the system. Mm-hmm. It requires people to rethink how they work because people will just fall back to their own operating models. And those own operating models create a situation where everybody's doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. But what, what you want to see is if you want to see broad organizational stick to itness mm-hmm. and a culture that comes from that, you, 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 everybody has to be rolling in the same direction. So, you know, when, when we, when I do this, I, you know, I talk with it and nationally, I say, there's, 
uh, a couple of things that you need to be thinking about. Number one, you need to change your mindset. It is not a small, you know, pilot this. It's not uh, let's try this. It is broad. It is wide. It is quick. Second is you actually have to have an operating framework to use to be able to do this. So you can't just say, well, we're going to go do this and then not have things to work it out. So in the case of Intermountain, when I was there, there were seven systems that we that we called the Intermountain Operating Model that we deployed broadly. Um, at Integris, we call it the Integris Leadership Operating System. There's six key systems, and those systems help create certain behaviors, right? And then within those systems, there are subsystems. I don't want to get too technical because it gets very complex, but it's very simple and elegant. Like you can stand in front of people and say, here's the six things we're going to do differently. But then as they mature in their knowledge, there's 20 subsystems underneath it that sort of help them understand that as they get better and more mature, they can do some things. So you have to have that operating model. That's the second piece Um, and broadly implement it. Then when you do broadly implement it, you need to do daily tiered escalation huddles, which comes out of our loop closure system. Uh, That is basically a system where every single day, every single group huddles at a certain time and escalates key issues up all the way to the CEO. So every day at 10 o'clock, I get together with my team, actually 945, and they are escalating to me any serious safety events, any caregiver injury rates, any uh, throughput problems. Uh, I mean, there's a handful of things that we ask every single day, right? So start with a handful, five, six, 10 max that you escalate. You have a rhythm of when it does it. So you have to be, be a little bit thoughtful about how you can get the whole organization starting in the morning all the way to where you get to uh, what I call a tier five, which is my tiers. If you're a large organization, you may have six or seven, but you wouldn't have much more than that, even in a General Motors or a 3M. Mm-hmm. But you, you basically are escalating information up, makes things uh, quick, information available quick. You fix things quickly. It sends a serious message that you really care about caregiver safety and patient safety. So there's a whole host of benefits. So that's one of the things that you implement broadly and quickly. The second is that you have these huddles mm-hmm. everywhere, um, um, huddle boards. So we organize ourselves around things that you might see as missions in the work site, in the manufacturing, but it's safety, quality, experience, access, affordability, engaged caregivers. But we, we have these huddle boards everywhere that people congregate around and talk through what the key issues are. Um, and then we, we broadly implement um, uh, an idea system that gives people a voice. And we say, hey, we want your ideas. Those are kind of the main pieces of the things that I roll out in broadly, quickly. I might roll out some other loop closure system uh, subsystems like uh, what I call work site reviews, which is mm-hmm. where leaders programmatically go out and visit the work site, sometimes called Gemba visits or walks, a little bit more purposeful than that. But, uh, you know, just a handful of these things from this operating model. And then that basically becomes the chassis from which you can just layer on based on maturity other things that you're going to be doing. Um, 
you know, you pretty soon discover we don't have a common way uh, that we solve problems. Mm -hmm. So what is our level one problem solving tools and techniques? How do we teach them? How do we layer that in? You know, and then it's very simple. Like if you if you're already meeting, uh, you've got ideas and huddle boards and they're meeting on a regular basis. It's very simple to say, hey, level one problem solving is a five why exercise. So if you have something coming up, just let's do a quick five why exercise. Mm hmm very simple versus a you know a level three problem solving where you might go in to do some sort of a six sigma project or whatever else might be uh the right lean tool to use to to problem solve but you can sort of do that within the framework of this operating model that we have in place and i found everywhere i go you know people complain about it the first i can't believe you're asking me to do this this is a pain they don't have time to do this and Two weeks later, they just, it's always been two weeks later. I can't imagine ever not doing work, not having these pieces in place. Yeah. I mean, we, we've reduced, here at Integris, we reduced serious safety events by 60%. And, um, you know, what, the, what from historically we've been tracking. <laughs> and now we've said, hey, we're actually not capturing all the harms that we're doing. So let's expand that even more. So now we're actually looking at how we can get our arms around even more harms for patient care to improve it. Caregiver injuries, uh, we've reduced caregiver injuries by 25, 30%. Um, we've seen people loving the idea systems. Uh, you know, first year we were, um, we have 10,000 caregivers and we implemented, I think, six, 7,000 ideas in the first year. Uh, you know, not quite the rate auto leave of two implemented ideas per employee per week, but, uh, but certainly way more than we were doing and we're on pace to do even more this coming year. So, I mean, uh, this stuff people like, and they start getting their voice. Now, you know, we're not where we need to be. We're not as mature as I'd like us to be, but we now have a framework that we can continue to layer on more knowledge, more techniques, more tools that just unleash the creative genius and, and create this operating rhythm that is uh, very virtuous in the, in the cycle of improvement. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And just as you were speaking and talking about the system and for listeners who are trying to think, well, give me an example. Like, what does that look like? I mean, I, I remember examples standing with your, your food service teams when um, when you were back at Intermountain Healthcare, and the food service, the chef actually told me, said, I never thought this would be a good idea. I was totally against it. And then afterwards, he said, I'll never go back. I'll never manage any different way. Because all of a sudden, he realized everyone on his team was helping him solve the problems. Like, how do we get, you know, broccoli to the patient that's still warm and not mushy or yeah. raw, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I've, and we've had that exact same conversation here in Texas with several leaders <laughs> saying, you know, we th first we thought it was just crazy and it's, you know, why are we doing this? It's yeah. a waste of time. And then pretty soon they realized, wow, we actually, you know, they, people up the ladder really do care about safety and, yeah. uh, and we're making changes. Like they can point to visible things. Oh, you know, there were, there weren't stairs on that hill that people were walking from out of a parking structure. And we escalated as a safety problem, and now there's stairs, so people aren't slipping down the hill, right? I mean, it's just simple stuff that yeah. then they start going, oh, okay, we can make a difference. That was my idea. I implemented it, and 
honestly, then when you go to the Gemba or when you do what I call worksite reviews, you actually have something to talk about, right? Yeah. You can you can say, hey, tell me about a cool idea that you implemented. And the light goes on and they start talking about it. They're excited and you can give them a high five, at least before COVID. You'd give them a high five. Maybe now you give them a virtual high five. But uh but, you know, it's it's uh, it's a great way to recognize. It's a great way to talk about stuff. And, you know, quite frankly, when I used to go to the Gambler, when I used to go to the work site, I've done that really my whole career, but not so much in a purposeful way. I was always fearful that someone was going to ask me something that I just knew was going to take up my whole day mm-hmm. because now I was going to write it on a post-it note and know that I had to check up and follow up and stuff. And and now I basically say, hey, that's, that's a really great idea. Have you put that on the, on the idea board? No. Okay. I go over to the idea board. I rip a card off and I say, here, put that on. I, when I come back, I probably won't remember this, but when I come back, remind me of your idea. I want to hear how it progresses. And now all of a sudden there's a system to take care of the idea at the appropriate level as opposed to me going back and writing five emails to people and then putting a tickler system in place to remind myself to follow up and then get back to this caregiver a month later, even if I ever did get back to him because it got consumed. I, I got consumed with something else that seemed to be more important at that time. This just tells caregivers, hey, your ideas are important. Give them. We want them. Yeah, I love that. And and it's key because they're coming up with better ideas than we could probably create on our own anyway. They're doing the work every Absolutely. single day. Yeah, um, yeah. Over and over again. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, who better to do the work than, than those who are doing the work, you know, to improve the work than those who are doing the work. And you're giving them those opportunities. I've heard managers, so many managers, just like you just shared with me, really were literally afraid that if they went to the Gemba, they would just get more things to, on their to-do list and would rather just not go out and meet with people because if they just stay in their office, at least it minimizes their to-do list a little bit and they just felt a sense of overwhelm. And what I've been trying to help folks understand is go out as a better coach, as a better listener, as a better observer, as a champion of the people doing the work and help them to feel like they can resolve their own problems. So we're teaching people how to be better coaches out there in the floor. And and the reality is, is if you, you're always going to be frustrated if you don't have some mechanisms, some well-thought-out mechanisms. You know, mine is the idea boards, Mm -hmm. but yours could be something else. But you need to have something that you can point to that's visible, tangible, that people feel is a regular, predictable, reliable way for them to vet their ideas and get get themselves heard. If you've got that, it really becomes liberating, honestly. I agree with you. And And I highly encourage people to consider the things you've just mentioned as the core of a good foundation for improvement. Over and over again, I've seen this example. One more example I'm thinking of is when I was in the sterilization room where they process all of the... Um, all the tools and surgical tools after they come out of surgery, they have to be cleaned, but these are really expensive kits. I mean, we're talking, you know, $50,000 for a kit sometimes. Some of these tools are very, very specific. If the people handling that equipment don't understand the real or the purpose, they don't realize it. it, It's not that they're not being careful. I'm not suggesting that, but when they realize the purpose, they're just that much more careful. If this they know is, you know, this little hook is going to go into someone's iris and, and operate on someone's surgery on their eye, if it gets bent, it tweaks everything for the surgeon and they just can't do their work. We have to replace equipment. Or I, I saw where they were now tracking on their boards, their visual management boards, where the, where the most 
common infections were occurring after surgeries, and they're trying to track it to specific pieces of equipment. And now they're going up to the surgeries and attending surgeries and saying, we can do better. We can improve our processes because we now are part of the whole system. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, again, I, I'm always amazed as the uh, operating model gets implemented and you start to see it mature. It's just unbelievable what, how, what smart people we have. Yeah. It's like, why didn't I think of this sooner? Because, you know, they can solve these problems. I can't solve them. I mean, yeah. I'm never going to be able to solve these problems. But they're, you know, it's a principle we all know and understand. The, the people doing the work know how best to improve it. Yep. And uh, so you have to make sure that you have systems in place to, to harness that. Because that collective genius is there in every single organization and will be there to serve you Um not because they want to serve you, but because they want to, people want to do good work. Yeah. They want to make improvements. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And if you give them that avenue, it really does help. I, I totally agree. You brought up another topic a moment ago that I want to touch briefly. I know a lot of people are, you know, tired of hearing about COVID, but it's certainly still part of our lives. And I think it will be for a, a period of time, uh, who knows how long in the foreseeable future. How has this operating system enabled you to respond um, in your system when all of a sudden this, this, this COVID just kind of hit us really, really hard um, without, without a lot of uh, a warning, you know? I was having that conversation with my chief a nurse executive, and she was like, if we didn't have this operative model in place, we would be in such rough shape. I mean, we've been able to respond in a way uh, that is, I'm just so proud of the team, but it's because we had these systems in place to be able to respond. You know, we, these daily tiered escalation huddles, we knew what was going on immediately. We could figure things out. We could create uh, uh follow-up mechanisms in our loop closure system that helped us um, make sure that we get things at the end of the row. I mean, we had discipline in our process. So um, if we didn't have it, it would have been, it would have been disastrous. It would have been really hard for us to be as successful as we were in spinning up all of our activities to prepare and then care for um, our COVID patients and continue to care for all the other things that were going on. Right. I know that healthcare systems right now are, well, under a lot of pressure, and you know that better than than I would for sure. Can you speak for a moment? How do we how do we get through some of this? And 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 then I'd like to get into you know maybe some examples of of teams people on your teams that have inspired you as well. But how yeah. do we navigate the next few months and the next? How, what do you see going forward as we navigate through COVID now? Right. Well, uh, so. Um let me just say before I answer that question, mm. uh, kind of in going back to the other question that you had. So one of the key systems, the very first key system of, of this integrous leadership operating system is strategy deployment. And it's basically what does it mean to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. So it's organizing your work. And at a, at a high level, you know, I have to speak to my board and the rating agencies and so forth. So I have to put things into packages that they can understand and get their heads around 
and they're somewhat high level, right? So we've got seven overarching strategies that I'd say those are worth, you know, we are going after really hard. But then underneath that, there are initiatives that we were able to identify, able to identify and create a disciplined approach. So you, you can see me, your listeners can't see me, but behind me is a strategy connection tool. Mm-hmm. And those are all of the strategies, those seven strategies, as well as the strategic initiatives underneath those. And so, you know, we've got that framework that we use, and then each year we go through and refresh it and update it on a month or on an every week basis. We do what I call strategy review. It's part of our standard calendar, which is part of our loop closure system. But we just hit on elements of each one of those strategies or those Mm -hmm. initiatives to understand if we're on track and so forth and what's our return to green plans. We use a strategic A3. Anyway, without boring with all the gory details. So now COVID hits, turns us upside down. It's having us to rethink what our whole industry is going to look like. What does care look like in the future? How do we remake ourselves? How do we recover from some of the financial devastation that this has caused? Man, it has been so helpful because there's so much going on all over the place to be able to just stop and say, okay, here's what we said was most important when the world was different. What has changed? And just kind of systematically go through, yep, that's still right. That's still right. That's still on point. We're, you know, and, and so we've got plans in place and we're not changing the way that we're thinking about that. And then there's ones, yeah, that probably has changed. That probably needs to come off the list or that. That one, it needs to be tweaked to add this element to it. I mean, it it created such a calming feeling because there was a disciplined approach to look at what do we do to get ourselves out of, you know, this economic turmoil that we're in. Mm -hmm. And we we just saw um, lots of things that we had underway. and We kind of were able to take a deep breath and say, okay, we can get through this. We know how to do this. Here's a few other elements. We'll add those pieces in. We've got a rhythm on how to deal with that. We know it's going to, you know, as opposed to just like run into the next fire that said, oh my gosh, here's COVID. We got to run and do that fire. We mm-hmm. absolutely have to do that. But we've once we were able to put it into that process, it really, it's just helped us calm the team, stay focused on the things that are important, weed out the stuff that's not, add the things that now become more important. And off we go, right? And so that's been another aha moment of, hey, this is this withstands the crisis, mm-hmm. and it's important to stay focused on some of these elements. Did we suspend some pieces of this while we were in the middle of the COVID crisis? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, of course we did. Um, uh, we we stopped doing our initial strategy review for a month and a half because we were that weekly strategy review. We just had to get focused on. How do we stand up a command center? How do we get protective, uh, personal protective equipment for people? What kind of protocols are we going to put in place uh, to, to keep uh, people when they come here safe? I mean, there was just a lot that we had to focus. But now we got that all organized, put it into the way we think in terms of party model, and now we can just get right back to business and do, staying focused on the things that we said were most important. Yeah. I'm really grateful that you would share so much of that with us. I, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, how much we could get into today and, and you've just been so transparent. I'm really grateful that you would share that because I think it's extremely valuable for people to realize that 
Well, some of this can get very complicated and you're, you're in a, in, I mean, 10,000 caregivers and a lot of moving parts and a lot of different personalities and expertise. And, and then also in this pandemic and a lot of stress, a lot of things could go wrong. And yet what you found is that a constancy of purpose in that strategy deployment helps us to filter our priorities and, and how do we stay on track? Yep, for sure. So how do you? Sure. So so how I don't do you remember navigate? what your initial question was. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and then and then I also want to be respectful. I mean, we could talk, Tim. You know, I, I I would love to talk to you. I mean, frankly, for another half a day, but I want to stay friends with your administrative assistant as well. Yeah, there you go. And and I and I, I also respect. You know, you're in a in a high pressure situation right now. We've had to delay this several times because your schedule is very busy. And, and I want to be respectful of your time today. I know the listeners are probably very interested right now in finding out, you know, there's so much news right now on COVID. Um, and some of it's true, some of it's not true. So my question really was to you, and maybe you can frame this however you'd like, but how do you see us moving forward as you go forward? How do you lead your, your organization through the next few months to a year when the financial pressure is also really, really real? And like most healthcare systems, the financial stress has actually become exacerbated because of this, because we focused solely on COVID when all the other things were kind of the way we sustained ourselves. How, how, do you, right. how do you navigate this? And what should listeners be thinking about when there's just COVID overload? Yeah, well, so I would say how we're, plan- how we're thinking about it is we have to continue to keep our eye on the long on the long vision, the long mm-hmm. view, while being very nimble in the short run to make adaptions and change adaptations and changes along the way, but we still, you know, people still want healthcare to be a viable service in the community. So we have to, we are going to continue to be a viable service in the community, even while experiencing some financial troubles. Um, and, but yet that is also a a call for us to be nimble and focused. I think, um, the taking a step back in terms of how should America or how should people think about this? I'm a, I'm an A3 thinker. Uh, I think I was an A3 thinker before I knew that I was an A3 thinker, but you know, it's, it's, it goes back to the scientific method you look at data you make a hypothesis you test some things you see if it works out if it's if it works out you harden it you hardwire it and then you move on to the next problem if it doesn't work out then you test a new hypothesis and you continue to do that until we move forward Mm -hmm. when we started covid we had a certain set of information that looked really scary very contagious new novel coronavirus and it looked like the case fatality rate was very, very uh, high. Mm-hmm. Um, so you put contagious, very contagious, and very high mortality. Yeah. And you go, oh my gosh, we got to shut down the economy. And yep. because what we did when we flat, when we were trying to flatten the curve, which everybody's come to learn what that term is, they don't know what it really means, but they've learned the term. It was to slow the spread so that the health system could handle the number of patients that would come to it. So we could save lives for people who have COVID that then turn into some sort of pneumonia or some sort of uh, uh, ARDS, uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome, which is what kills people, right? And so if we have ventilators and 
hospitals, high flow oxygen, we can save people who would otherwise not be serviced because there weren't enough beds, respirators, et cetera, right? Well, now we've learned in most places, uh, we've been able to not see that uh, that use or that demand on mm-hmm. health services. Most places across the country flattened the curve, flattened it so much that like, we have lots of capacity. I mean, right now I could take care of a lot of COVID patients if they came in. And so as we then sort of titrate out of this, as the government loosens restrictions, that's very appropriate for us to do. We should start going back to somewhat normal living. The other piece that we've learned is that it's not as deadly as we thought it was, right? And it's focused pretty much the way that the flu is focused, mm-hmm. except for 1917 and 18, where it, it, you know, the death comes from the 70 plus age predominantly with people with uh, underlying health issues, comorbidities, right? So because we know that, we need to just be sensitive to the fact that it, it still can produce death. Yes. But it's not as scary as it was. So we got to go back to living or we're going to tank the entire economy. Just here's some examples. Um, the deaths per 100,000 from COVID are 19.25. The heart disease deaths in the United States per 100,000 are 163. So, you know, it's about eight times uh, the death rate. I've got people staying home and dying in their homes from heart disease or strokes when they're 16 uh, or they're eight times more likely to die by that action than actually getting COVID and dying. If you think about regular pneumonia, every year we, you know, the death rate per 100,000 is 15.1. So not that much different than what we're seeing with COVID. And yet we don't run around stopping our lives because of pneumonia. Um, I mean, think about jumping into a car. That's a risky thing to go do, to go jump into a car to drive to the grocery store. The death rate per 100,000 is 16 and a half in the United States. So if COVID's 19.25, you're basic. I mean, it's very similar risk. Maybe fourteen percent more. I think uh, more likely to die from COVID than you would from jumping in a car. But I don't think twice about it. Like I don't. I mean, I put my seatbelt in. I'd be safe and drive. But I don't. I don't not drive. Right. Right. So if this is what we're seeing with COVID, we just it's new data, right? We didn't know this. So I think we can start going back to living life, not. I mean, you're not going to jump in your car and not put your seatbelt on. You're right. not going to look both not look both ways when you come to a stop sign. You're going to look both ways. You're going to take precautions, just like we need to do with COVID, but we need to continue to live. People can't stop getting care. They can't stop living and being and working and supporting their families. Mm-hmm. They, we have to do that. When you look at the, um, the death rates in the elderly – they're often over, are the young, they're often overplayed because they're sensational stories, they're awful stories. You hear of a 30-year-old getting COVID and dying and they didn't have comorbidities and you go, oh my gosh, I'm going to die because it was that person. Well, right. you know, the data shows from Italy that only 0.7% of people 
that were under 65, you know, or that were in that healthy range, that young, healthy range died. In New York, it was 1.8%. So again, the data just doesn't support the fear that we've put in people. And we've got to start retelling the message. And I'm working, you know, with our local officials in Oklahoma and with their hospital association and others to kind of try and remake this. That said, every local market is slightly different and you have to be careful. If you live in New York, it's a different set of criteria because you're living on top of each other. But if you're living in Idaho, like you do, you can go out. You don't have to wear a mask when you're riding the bike in the in the field. It just it doesn't make any sense because you're not going to get COVID from your mask somewhere somewhere else. In fact, you might get it because you're touching your face because you're adjusting the mask all the time. So that's, you know, that's what we've got to be thinking about. And we shouldn't be critical of those places that are taking different approaches and, and you know, hypothesizing around data. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of shaming towards Sweden, for example, who took a different approach. They basically said, well, we're going to go about living our lives. We're not going to have these lockdowns. And we'll sort of hotspot. They do some lockdowns, but, you know, their deaths per 100,000 are 25. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their deaths, 93% of them came from people that were 70 or older mm-hmm. and largely living in some sort of a nursing home. Mm-hmm. So then you say, okay, well, based on that data, we need to be doing something to protect the nursing homes. Right. And figuring out how, how to make sure that people are safe there and let people go on living. This is an experiment. That's what they should do. I know it is with people's lives and every life is precious, but there's a lot of collateral damage if we don't try an experiment. We don't not want to be an experimenting culture. That's what we've learned in continuous improvement and lean. Always be trying new things to continuously improve. And when people step out and try and do something different in this, I think we should applaud them, Uh, especially if it's based in some science and some thought. You know, don't, don't go after them. Don't shame them because yeah. it, this could lead to some sort of discovery that we say, oh, my goodness, this is why, why did we ever not think of that in the first place? Tim, I really appreciate this conversation and I appreciate your approach to it saying, you know, there's a lot to this. It's good that we experimented the way we did at the beginning, and now we need to continue to pivot and learn and grow, take the data that we've received and really trust that scientific process, as you suggested, and continue to learn from this, Right. And, yep. and we continue to learn and pivot as we go. And, it, and, and there is a lot of collateral damage. There's a lot of other consequences that aren't showing up necessarily. But the domestic violence or the, you know, I'm sure the hospitals are getting a lot of that. The shelters are overwhelmed. The food production services, I mean, the layoffs and the amount of, a lot, a lot of other things. Um, and, and so I appreciate your common sense and your, your comments today. We care about lives. I know you care about lives. You're improving lives every day with the system that you've created very thoughtfully at Integris. I'm grateful to call you a friend. Thank you. Appreciate it, Max. I'm great to see you and best to you and, and stay well and continue to wash your hands. I, I, I'll tell you that I am a better, <laughs> I, I was always a good hand washer. I've always been, you know, cause I travel a lot and I, so I do travel and I wash my hands a lot and I think it's made me a little more OCD. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I'm, and my hands are constantly yeah, dry sure. and cracking now. So I'm always lotioning them afterwards, but um, I've learned a lot. Put your seatbelt on, don't stop driving. Wash yeah. your hands, don't stop living. Yeah, I agree with that, Tim, and I really appreciate it. Could you just, as we as we finish up here, again, one one quick story that you has inspired you from your caregivers through all this, just 
maybe something to give us some hope as we as we finish here on maybe that maybe your point of you know don't stop driving is the message but how do our caregivers or something that kind of strikes you as inspiring well i I, honestly my best days are when i go out and do my work site reviews and see the light in people's eyes as Mm -hmm. they talk about the improvements that they're making to whatever it is that they're trying to improve it's just it's uh, absolutely inspiring and there's 20 stories I could tell you uh, that I won't because we don't have time, mm-hmm. but just that, that is inspiring and it's reward enough. I, Janice, my wife knows when I've been out doing work set reviews because I come home with a diff- different disposition because I'm like, you know what, who can beat us when we have 10,000 caregivers that are problem solvers? Yeah. We're, we're going to save more lives. We're going to help more people. Uh, when we get every caregiver engaged and and that's what it's about that's what inspires me and hopefully it inspires other people as well tim pearson president and ceo at integris health thank you my friend for being on the show thank you take care best to you thank you i'm gonna keep driving okay take care care. Bye. bye bye